I received it by means of a text message and maybe 10 minutes before that I had just listening, finished listening to one of his lectures on uh, tafsir of a surah, subhanallah. So I was completely overwhelmed when I heard the news and um, I've been meaning to say something about him, something uh, just uh, in, in service to what he has done for me personally and for the Muslims in general. Uh, but I want to start my comments with something on the side inshallah ta'ala and that is that uh, this ummah one of its features is that we are merciful to each other. That's one of the main qualities this ummah has, that we are merciful to each other. But unfortunately, in our times, it's okay, it's just a kid, sorry. But in our times, unfortunately, especially to those who serve the religion, like the ulama, people are the least merciful to them. Hey you, hey you over there. Shh. He's gonna do it again. <laughs> Whose little guy is that? Stop him. Okay, mashallah. Zakallah khair. He's awesome though. Okay, so, so anyhow. So we are the least merciful to our own ulama. And what ends up happening is our ulama end up saying something that is not agreeable to everyone or ends up saying something that you might even call controversial. And so what we do is in return, we forget every good thing they may have done in their life and we hold on to that one statement, that one quote, that one paragraph, whatever they may have said and said, oh, you're talking about that guy who did this? And because of this, they may be kafir or deviant or this or calling people to the hellfire. All kinds of filthy names will be called. And so many ulama have been demonized because of this. So many ulama in our history have been demonized by Muslims themselves. The ummah that is supposed to be known for mercy among each other is the most vicious to each other. And imagine if this person, whoever he may have been, and this is not about Dr. Sar Ahmed in particular, Whoever he may have been, if he is, he's awesome. He just, it's alright, he's enjoying the speech. Okay. You know, if, if that person is close to Allah and their work was acceptable to Allah, and Allah forgave whatever mistake they made, they said something in a speech or something and it was a mistake and Allah forgave it. And Allah accepted all the good deeds that they did. Imagine that you and I are hounding on this person and, and cursing them and publicly ridiculing them and on the other hand, Allah has forgiven him. Where do we stand with Allah Azza wa Jal? SubhanAllah. That he may be counted from the awliya of Allah. We don't know. So this is something we have to be, Muslims themselves have to be very careful about. And what I've noticed, and you may differ with me, but what I've noticed is the people of knowledge, the actual scholars are very respectful. And the people that are gangsters in the cloaks of scholars, they really are, they're mobsters, they have their mafia, they have their crowds, and they're trying to hold on to their territory, that's all it is. It's just in the name of religion, that's the only difference. Otherwise, it's no different than the mafia. These are the people that create these kinds of problems. And we should ignore that kind of rhetoric and not even respond to it. We should just ignore it as Muslims generally. Anyhow, when it comes to the work of the late uh, Dr. Asar Ahmed, uh, he's known for predominantly two things. There's his political activism, and his political thought, and then there is his Qur'anic work. And I'm going to dedicate this conversation, inshallah ta'ala, to his Qur'an-related work, inshallah. And maybe some other time we can talk about his political thought. Uh, but I think the more relevant and the more universal contribution he has to offer is his Qur'anic service, the service to the study of Qur'an that he provided. 
as an introduction to it, I will tell you that his study of Qur'an and his education of the Qur'an for the Muslims was divided into three parts. So you have to, to organize your thoughts about this man and his ideas, it's three things you have to try and remember inshaAllah ta'ala. The first of them is the, the education of the Qur'an for the vast majority or the masses of Muslims. There has to be some kind of a program where all Muslims are educated about what the Qur'an is, what it has to say, what its message is. They have to have at least a bare minimal knowledge of the language of the Qur'an so they, when they are standing in salah and the Qur'an is being recited, they know what it has to say. They identify with this book and it gives them a sense of identity. That was the first purpose and the first part of his movement. To achieve this goal, he basically engaged in two major projects. The first project is called Dora Tarjima Qur'an in Urdu. Dora Tarjima Qur'an. And this was, you know how masajid all over the world have the taraweeh prayer during Ramadan and people are feel, feeling a spirit of connection with the Qur'an and the average Muslim reads more Qur'an in that month than any other time. So he saw that as a strategic opportunity. Why not do a dars, a lecture series on the entire Qur'an, ayah by ayah, even if in brief translation, during that month. So for example in Lahore where he started this, there would be 20 taraweeh, you know, 20 taraweeh of prayer and one juz is recited or a little more. After every four rak'ah, he'll give a dars on everything that was recited. And then a dars, then four more rak'ah. And then more dars and four more rak'ah. So they would do 20 rak'ah of taraweeh and then actually go through the entire Qur'an in translation with brief explanation where necessary, but keep flowing. This wasn't giving a lot of detail to every ayah or a lot of depth, but at least Muslims have an overview of what the Qur'an says, number one. And the second benefit of this project, which is huge, is that most of us, especially even the versed or seasoned students of Qur'an, when we study the Qur'an, we study one ayah at a time. We study two ayat at a time. We study very small chunks of Qur'an at a time, or even a subject at a time. For example, the subject of women in the Qur'an, or the subject of taqwa in the Qur'an, or the subject of death in the Qur'an. So what we do is we take one subject, or one ayah, or one small piece, and focus in on that. But this approach that he had, you know what it does? It gives you a, a taste of the Qur'an as a conversation, Allah speaking. Because instead of stopping at an ayah, you, recite the, you read the ayah and you read the ayah right after and right after and right after and what happens is you get a sense of a flow of conversation. And a lot of times, even in translation, you will not get a taste and appreciation of the Qur'an as dialogue, as conversation, as you will in that, in that program. And actually the first time I was properly introduced to the Qur'an was through that program and I felt really like it was a conversation between Allah and human beings. It feels like that. And that's what salah is supposed to feel like, by the way. Salah, the purpose of Salah is we feel like Allah is conversing with us by means of His words. But because the vast majority of Muslims don't understand the Arabic language and don't understand the language of the Qur'an, this was His way of compensating. That was the idea. If we can't connect to Allah with the Qur'an in the Salah, at least translate it and connect the next best thing was His idea, right? So that was the first project that He started every Ramadan and He did it tirelessly. Incidentally, I tried to do it once like five years ago, five, six years ago in Muslim center in Flushing. And I swear to you, I don't know how the man did it. I have no idea. I would study eight, nine hours a day and give three and a half, four hours of lecture that night and I would be exhausted. And he did this for 20, 30 years straight without a break. Without a break, subhanAllah. I'm just baffled at how he did it every single Ramadan. I did it then and I said, man, I made this commitment, I'm gonna finish it. I couldn't even stand up straight like by the end of like the 20th day of Ramadan. <laughs> and at the end of it, I said, I'm not doing this again. 
Forget it. If I do it, I'll spread it over 10 years. <laughs> right? SubhanAllah. So that's one of his great contributions. The second, this is also part of mass education for Muslims, was okay, if Muslims are not going to make the time to study the entire Qur'an, at least they should study about a tenth of the Qur'an in depth, or a little more in depth. So he made a course. In Urdu, it's called Muntakhab Nisab. It's about 70 hours of lecture in Urdu. Actually, in 44 hours of lecture in Urdu, 70 hours in English, because he spoke slower in English, right? Uh, rahimahullah. And he took about two and a half to three juz of selections from the Qur'an. And he said, if you study these selections properly, the purpose of them is it will give you a, basically a scheme, a, a framework of all of the subjects in the Qur'an. All of the subjects in the Qur'an. And it was based on a simple philosophy that the summary of the entire Qur'an rests inside Suratul Asr. That every piece, you know, the first ayah, the second ayah, the third ayah, especially the third ayah of Suratul Asr, إِلَّا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ You all know this, وَتَوَاسَوْا بِالْحَقِّ وَتَوَاسَوْا بِالصَّبْرِ That the Qur'an either deals with iman, إِلَّا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا Or it deals with righteous deeds, وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ Or it deals with enjoining the truth, وَتَوَاسَوْا بِالْحَقِّ Or enjoining perseverance, وَتَوَاسَوْا بِالصَّبْرِ Based on that understanding, he devised an entire curriculum which was a continuation of a curriculum that was made even before him by a scholar by the name of Amin Ahsan Islahi uh, rahimahullah, he developed that curriculum first and it was enhanced and added to by Dr. Israr Ahmed. Uh, Amin Ahsan Islahi, by the way, rahimahullah, was one of the great influences on Dr. Israr Ahmed. Though he disagreed with him on a number of things, you will notice if you are a continuous listener of Dr. Saab that he will mention Amin Ahsan Islahi, rahimahullah, quite a bit. And he was very influenced by his tafsir, Tadabbur al Quran, and he had a lot of personal interactions with him as well before he passed away. Anyhow, so this is his first thing educating the average Muslim. With the Qur'an, the only additional thing I will tell you about that is His theory was that there has to be mass education of at least basic Qur'anic education And Arabic in the entire Muslim world All Muslims have an obligation to learn Arabic as best as they can This is the language of Allah's book, it should be part of minimal education Like you know in, in the public or secular world we say at least get a GED or at least graduate from high school. Well, his idea was at least know some Quran and at least know Arabic. At least know that much. That much education every single Muslim should have. That was his theory. And that's again mass education. Now we go to his second layer of service. You can call this Tadabburul Quran. A deep reflection on the Quran. A deep thorough study of the Quran. He developed this thought and, and started acting on it more seriously in the early 80s. And he decided to commit himself to a series of durus where he would study maybe 20 tafsir, 20 tafsirs of the scholars, take his own notes, and then present a detailed lecture on every single surah that he would study. This was not something that you translate and keep going. He would spend hours and hours and hours on an ayah at a time if necessary. He decided that he's going to do this for the entire Quran. Actually, from what he said in one of his lectures, he started that project in 1976. Himself, he says it's, the, the series is called Mufassal Darse Quran. That's what the name is in Urdu, Mufassal Darse Quran. So there's Bayanul Quran, which is the translation and quick dars, and then there's Mufassal Darse Quran, which is the detailed, deep, analytical study of Quran. I don't have access to it except for one third of it. One third of it is recorded and posted online. I think the rest of it never got, never saw the light of day, or he did it in his masjid, but it wasn't recorded or published or anything like that. But whatever he did do, let me tell you something about it. I developed that virus myself some time ago. 
that I'm going to study the entire Quran for myself in depth and whatever surah I study I'm going to go through 26, 27 different sources and properly study it before I talk about it and he was one of my resources so I, wallahi, I would study 20 different tafasir and grammatical analysis and the books of you know this scholar and that scholar and the other scholar and I would still have questions in my head and then I'd listen to this man speak for 3-4 hours on the same question I had and he would solve my problems like you're untying a knot incredible just the amount of work he put in, I appreciate. You know, and it's a tragedy to me personally, it's a loss that he doesn't have every surah of Qur'an there, it's not posted. SubhanAllah. But whatever he does, has is, is an, does have is an absolute treasure. Priceless. I haven't read anything in the Salaf, or even in later times by intellectuals, even though they have great contributions, that comes even close to solving the kinds of philosophical problems that he did, and the kinds of intellectual problems or historical analysis even, I mean, if you study his historical analysis, for example, of Inna Fatahna Laka Fatham Mubina, if you study his historical analysis and compare it to any other tafsir that you will study, you study tafsir will be left with questions. You will be left with questions. And he was left with those questions and he kept studying and researching until he found the answers to those questions and simplified them so one day a dummy like me can listen and understand of the many thousands, hundreds of thousands that listen and appreciate from his work. This was the second part, a deep study of the Qur'an, the Dabur al-Qur'an. He unfortunately was not able to finish that series. Whatever he did do though, uh, is posted on the Tanveem's website. They've, they've posted it, it's a, a great contribution. Inshallah ta'ala, I hope that one day it gets translated into English because it is an absolutely priceless uh, treasure of Qur'anic studies. Now his final contribution to Qur'anic studies. The title he liked to give this himself was uh, Islamic Renaissance. He called this an Islamic Renaissance. And the idea he had was that the Quran is the most sophisticated document, not just from a religious point of view, but from a, you know, justice or domestic, you know, domestic solutions, political solutions, economic solutions. You talk about any problem that exists in the world, the Quran is the most sophisticated document that has the solutions to it. And to present that to the world, is that easy you think? To go to an economics professor and say, you know what? All the problems of modern economy, are, the solutions are right here in this book. Is that easy to do? It's not. And he said, they'd probably laugh at you. If you do that, what are you talking about? You're, you're just like those Christians who, Bible thumpers they call it, right? So he said, in order to actually prove to the world that the Qur'an has the solutions to every problem humanity has ever faced, and has the guidelines to create and to live by the most harmonious society ever seen by history what we need are scholars that have, an, uh, that have a deep study of the Qur'an on the one hand and a deep study of one of the humanities on the other and he was a big, he used to talk a lot about how we are Muslims specifically Muslims are colonized, we were colonized you know by the British and the French and the Spaniards or whatever else right but our lands were colonized before, but now our minds are colonized. When they left, they left our minds as being colonized. What does that mean? That when you think about getting a good career, what do you think of? You think of some kind of technical science, or some kind of you know, medical, technical, financial, meaning you want to be a worker in the end. You want to serve the empire. Right? And any education that doesn't have to do with being in a job, or you know, technically doing labor, rather it has to do with thought, and deep reflection and thinking and intellectual pursuit for example sociology or history or political science or when you go into those careers the Muslim parents will say what are you wasting your time for? why are you thinking about economics? what kind of job are you gonna get? 
What are you going to do with sociology? What are you going to do with psychology? What are you going to do with anthropology or history? Useless stuff. And he says actually it is those sciences, they call them humanities. Those of you that are in college call them the useless courses, right? Those are the sciences that actually are the foundation of a society. The sociologists and the economists and the political scientists, these are the people who frame how society functions. Everybody else just works in it. But these are the people who craft society, who design society. I mean, look at our, the, the times in which we live in Wall Street and this and that and the other. It starts with Adam Smith, right? It, it starts with an economist, it starts with a writer. You know, you talk about the huge, you know, Soviet Union and this amazing empire, but it starts somewhere else. It starts with a writer, with Karl Marx. It starts with a sociologist, actually. He was a sociologist and an economist. So he says that Muslims have to be deep and very powerful intellectual sociologists, at the same time deep students of Qur'an, and bring these two together. And by bringing them together, you show the world how amazing the solutions of the Qur'an are for society. So instead of presenting the Qur'an as us versus them, it is us for them. If you understand what I'm saying. So he, here's a solution that will help you solve your problems. This is good for you. It's not even for me, it's good for you. And that's the amazing power that the Qur'an possesses. Now, in order to pursue this project, I told you, to pursue his first project, he did two things. Tarjumah Qur'an and Muntakhab Nisab. He did two things. For the deep study of Qur'an, he had his own project of, uh, you know, Mufassal Darsay Qur'an. To pursue this third project, he took a risk. I will tell you about this risk he took. He studied Islamic history and learned something. You know what he learned? He learned that the, the Muslims, when they were in Spain, they were the head of world civilization. All the universities, all the intellectual heads were where? They were in, under Muslim rule. And the Europeans were in the Dark Ages. So how did the Europeans make a comeback? You cannot have a comeback until you have scholarship. You can't do it. The reason the Western world is at the head of the, the planet today. Why are they leaps and bounds ahead of everybody else? Because they have the most sophisticated universities than anybody else. The centers of learning are also centers of society and centers of civilization. The Muslims were the, the places where universities were and we were also leaders of the world. So how did the Europeans make a comeback? Where did they send their young men? Where did they send their young blood? to the Muslim universities. And they were taking a big risk because if the Europeans go to Muslim universities, they might become Muslim and we might lose them. So this was a big risk for the Europeans because they might lose some of their freshest talent to the Muslims. But these Europeans went, a lot of them were lost to Islam from their point of view. We gained them, they lost them. But a good number of them learned what they had to learn and went back to Europe to make Europe a better place. And thus started the enlightenment. They started translating. The works of the philosophers were gone. They were only available in Arabic. The Greek philosophers, you couldn't find the Greek text. You could only find the Arabic text. So the Europeans came, translated them back into European languages and took them back with them. So this reversal, right? He says, now it's time where the Muslims have to come to Western universities, gain the highest form of knowledge and then return that intellectual tradition to the Muslim world. That was his idea. And for, for, for that purpose, he started an experiment. It was called IQW, uh, Institute of Quranic Wisdom. And part, one of the projects within that was called the Higher Studies Project. It's one of the tragedies in his life, that project. It's called, it was called the Higher Studies Project. The purpose of it was he would have some young brothers that would go and study with him in Pakistan and they would study the Qur'an and Arabic and all of this stuff and when he felt confident with them he would ship them off to the United States and they would do higher studies here do their PhD in sociology or history or whatever else 
And he did do that. There were a number of brothers. I actually knew them personally myself. And they learned under him, and then they, went, they came back here and they joined Hartford Seminary. Uh, they went to Harvard, they went to Yale, they went to different universities. And guess what ended up happening with most of them? They, they lost the other side. Or their ideas completely changed. And what he intended completely backfired. It completely backfired. With like, I know of one exception. I know of one exception of, of his two dozen students that I knew that engaged in this project. And he was actually hoping that I would be one of those uh, volunteers. But I said, I'll stay in LSP. That was the HSP, Higher Studies Project. I wanted to be LSP, Lower Studies. I was actually more fascinated with his Tadabbur al-Quran work. And I, was, I said, I don't have the brain cells for the Higher Studies Project. And that idea, it was a little... Over, even when they would talk about it, I was like, what? What are you talking about? You know? It is an, it's a remarkable idea. It really is. But we didn't have the infrastructure or the wherewithal to be able to execute that idea. I don't, think, I don't take merit away from that idea. It's a profound idea. It's an amazing idea. But we have to have a proper strategy to be able to execute it. He did whatever he could within his human capacity to fulfill that idea. And may Allah accept that from him. And that, that great concern for the ummah. It's actually for those of you that are interested, read this book. It's amazing reading. He wrote this, it's hard for me to believe he wrote this in 1965 when he was like 24. He wrote this when he was 24. It's called Islamic Renaissance, The Real Task Ahead. Read it twice. It's like maybe 40, 50 pages. But it'll blow your mind. If you're a serious reader, first of all, it'll blow your mind that this guy is not like an Englishman and he's writing this sophisticated language. It's sophisticated language. Most Islamic books are written in poor English. This is good English. This is English that will make you feel bad. Like I should have paid more attention in English class in high school English, right? And second of all, it's just the ideas in it are extremely powerful, very potent ideas. Now the final thing I will tell you about uh, Dr. Sarah Ahmed and I'll conclude inshallah. This is um, one of his lost treasures. The lost, I'm, I held that for last. He said that there are two views of looking at Islam. One view is you look at Islam and you say, what does it do for me? What does it do for me? What, what is halal for me? What can I enjoy? What more can I do? You make more and more things permissible on yourself. You ask what more luxuries can I take part in in this life? And there's another view of Islam, which is what more can I do for it? What more can I do for it? So one view is Islam is in service to me, and the other view is I am in service to Islam. And he said that the Sahaba were Predominant, if you study what they did and the kinds of questions they asked to the Messenger, what more can I do? How do I get to Jannah? Tell me the most amazing thing I can do, the most beloved thing to Allah that I can do. In other words, they weren't asking how much, how much less can I get away with? They were asking, what more can I do? And if you look at the questions of the Muslims today, when they go to the ulama, what do they ask? Do they ask, what more can I do for Allah? Or do they ask, what more dunya can Islam give me? Essentially, is this halal? Can I eat that too? Can I go there too? Can I buy this too? Can I get in this business also? Can I wear that? Can I... You understand? The mentality has become, I want to be served by the religion and feel good about myself and not have to feel guilty rather than me serving myself to Islam. And in this, he had a very, I would have to say extreme opinion, but I have to, in the end, I have to be jealous of him. I have to be jealous of him when you, Because having that extreme opinion I, I don't know of anybody who could have that nowadays I, I don't know You know what his extreme opinion was? He said until the deen of Islam Needs help 
He said, look around you and answer, ask yourself the question, does the deen of Islam need help? And I don't think any Muslim would look around and say, no, deen no, needs no help at all. I think all of us know very well, we are living in times where the deen needs help. He says, until the answer is yes, the deen of Islam needs help, he said, you shouldn't enjoy your food. You shouldn't buy new clothes. You shouldn't get, a, get an extra car or buy a house or expand your property. Give, live to the bare minimum and give everything else to help Allah's deen until that is done, until Allah is happy that the deen is established, you shouldn't be happy. That was his opinion. And you know, having that opinion is one thing. Living by it is something else. He would come to the United States. You know, scholars come from abroad, we put them up in hotels. Even I go and you know, at a conference and they'll book me a hotel room and this and that. The guy doesn't stay at a hotel. He's sleeping on the floor in the masjid. He's sleeping at somebody's house on the floor. You know? And he's eating like simple meals. And he's dressing in the same clothes. He's got two pairs of clothes. One's in the wash and the other he's wearing. That's what he's wearing for two months. Three months in a stretch. Subhanallah. It is one thing to say, I'm not going to enjoy life. I'm going to give everything to it. It's one thing to say that. But it's another to do that. Even go visit his institute in, in Lahore. Which I never had the fortune of visiting, but my, my friends and colleagues did. How is he living? How, what kind of life is he living? Subhanallah. It's a remarkable thing to have people that not only say that, but put literally what they say, put your money where your mouth is. You know? And he was expecting that from Muslims. It's a very high expectation. We're barely holding on to the fard, <laughs> the minimal fard. And here he was saying, give everything up for the sake of this deen. Put everything into it. He, the Urdu expression was, tan man dhan lagado. He would say it all the time. He would say it all the time. He said, forget about everything else. The deen needs your help. That was his calling. And I know that this is not the position of the majority of theologians. That they say the Muslim, it's okay for you to have extra pairs of clothes or whatever else. And you know, you don't have to be that extreme. And, we, and I say that, fine, it is. If you compare it to the vast majority of scholars, it is extreme. But man, I'm still jealous. To want, the, to want akhirah that bad and to let go of dunya that strongly, that's something we have to admire. It, re it really is. And in that sense, I feel of all his contributions, it is that idea that he lived by, that he presented constantly, that he educated people with, that idea alone makes, makes me think it's a huge loss to the ummah. That we have a person like that, and a fire like that that was burning in his heart, that is now gone. And I pray that Allah blesses our efforts, and those of, us, those of us that were in whatever small capacity his students are fortunate to, to take benefit from his thought, his ideas, his, his durus, his lessons, I pray that we're able to do some justice to what we learned, and to be able to present you know, something from the Qur'an in that light. Um, I want to tell you in the end two things inshallah and I'm done. The first of them is, uh, this happened about a year ago. I decided for myself, I told you to study Qur'an in depth, and alhamdulillah I have a partner with me now. And we're, our intention is to do a detailed study of the Qur'an and present it in tafsir uh, for English-speaking audiences based on whatever he did, but additional resources also. Classical tafsir, the works of Mutawalliya Sha'arawi, rahimahullah, Dr. Fadl Salih Hassan Ra'i, other, other intellectuals of our time that have done great work in Qur'anic studies. And whatever we have uh, presented so far, we've posted up on our website as a free service. The tafsir lectures that whatever we've done so far. I've, I started this about a year and two, three months ago. And I've finished Juz'amma so far. So I just finished Juz'amma like two, three weeks ago, and I'm, I'm taking a break, and then I'm gonna go back and start from Surah Yasin. But my colleague who's here visiting also from Texas, Shaykh Abdul Nasri, sitting among you actually, uh, he started just Tabarak. He started just Tabarak last week, and he's continuing also with those durus, and we're posting them. It's a detailed ayah by ayah study. So if you would like, if you don't have access to the English, uh, I know it's not really a comparison, but 
uh, it's the it's whatever's available to you in English. You can take advantage of that from our site at at, at uh, bayina.com, inshallah ta'ala. And on that note, um, what two things I took from him: Quranic studies and Arabic. And inshallah ta'ala, this summer there is an Arabic program coming from our institute to New York. It's not coming here to Bayshore, it's coming to Muslim Center in Flushing. And my colleague Abdul Nasser will be teaching it, so I'm going to ask him to talk about it for about five minutes. Jazakumullahu khairan for listening. I should just talk about it? I should? You sure? Okay. That is Sheikh Abdul Nasser, by the way. Um, yes, I think we should. I think we really should. Yeah, you came to New York, but you're, you have to listen. I'm sorry. That's your